second reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. And that's on page 1057 of the Church Bibles. Now I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she should be covered. A man, in fact, should not cover his head, because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you, so that those who are, are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. This is the word of the Lord. 
Uh, g'day everyone, my name is LT and I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge and um, I'm going to pray for us as we come to God's Word. Uh, Father, thanks uh, for some time together where you can be reminded of who we are in your Son, the Lord Jesus and what it means to live in light of who we are. So please, Father, by your Spirit, help us, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, well, happy Mother's Day. I had the privilege of celebrating Mother's Day yesterday, knowing that today my mum and I will be caught up in church. And so my mum and dad came over. Um, it's also, I guess, Mother's Day for the mum of my daughters. And so we celebrated. I, I shopped, I cooked. Um, but having done some things, I suspect I failed in terms of really loving my mum yesterday. You might have heard of a book called The Five Love Languages by a guy called Gary Chapman, uh, The Five Love Languages. And he has a theory uh, that we all have a primary love language and that if you want to truly love someone else, you need to know their primary love language so that you can help them and make them feel loved. Now, my mum's primary love language, which I suspect she nurtured in me as well, is the love language of gifts. And I failed to execute the gift-giving aspect yesterday in Mother's Day. I'm a bit of a long story, sort of logistical, organisational failure in the part of my dad and I, but that's kind of another story. Now, I'm hoping that she still felt love. She at least gave me a hug and a kiss as she left and said thank you. But in, in terms of love, you know, it's one thing to claim to have a loving relationship uh, and love and be loved, but it's another thing to know how to love. It's another thing to know how to love. I mean, as Christians, we claim to believe in and worship a God, God that the Bible says is love. God is love. And so as his people, of course, we must be people of love. Our lives, our relationships must be defined and marked by love, of course. Now, Jesus himself says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. It really defines what it is to live in this world in the right and proper way. But how do we do that? I think as we come to this part of 1 Corinthians, Corinthians some chapters 11 to 14, Paul is turning to us as God's people, particularly as we gather, to help us know how to love each other, to show us how to love each other. Chapters 8 to 10, so he was talking about how we can love sort of outside the context of church and what that means for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now it's like he turns to the inside and our internal relationships, if you like. And so we're going to talk about two aspects from this passage that he talks about uh, so we can know what love is. Now, as I've been talking to people about preaching this chapter from 1 Corinthians, there's been a little bit of, like, good luck preaching that, um, as if you could ever understand that, and, gee, that's hard. And to be honest, I've moved from that to actually being very excited and anticipated and delighted to come to speak about the issues in this passage. And we'll come to why in a moment. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Firstly, think about what love is in terms of its living out our God-given differences as men and women. What is love? Living at our God-given differences as men and women. So let's turn to 11 verse 3. Now I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Now right there, straight at the front, is why people were saying what they're saying. And it's particularly around the issue and the word head and what that means. And the problem is, and this may be here tonight, that people have experienced in real ways the distortion, the deforming and the abuse of that word. And so then we, as we hear people's extraordinary, exceptional experience, kind of under the banner of the use of that word, it's hard for us not to load into and others to load into our definition of that word from others' particular and peculiar experience, which often is a distorted and deformed definition of that concept. So as we come to this principle, and particularly this verse in the context of this chapter, let's see if we can let the Bible define and give content to the concept that Paul's talking about. So in terms of verse 3, what might have happened in your mind, I think, is what tends to happen as we read that verse and think of this concept that's actually not there. I think we hear what's there and naturally see this verse in a very hierarchical sense. Now, that dynamic might be present, but that's not how Paul set it up in this verse. And what I mean by this, we think there's, there's three pairs that are in that verse in terms of relationships. And I think we think of Paul's outlining like this, God and Christ, Christ and man, man and woman. I suspect that's how we think of it as we hear that verse, but that's not what Paul's written there. How he's written it is what's in the, on the screen in front of you. Christ and man, man and woman, God and Christ, which is different, clearly. What's in the middle is men and women, surrounded by the pairs of Christ and man and God and Christ. Now, I point that out to you because it's more like the parallels are like this. And so what you get, particularly, one thing you get very clearly is the connections with man and woman, with Christ, in the positions or order of the positions of the order that Paul's establishing, in the same position that Christ is in, or was in, or has been in. So just as Christ is over man, so man is over woman, so his example is Christ. And so I think the same is true of women. The position that Paul calls them to, God calls you to, is the position Christ has been under God. And so the conclusion you can clearly get from that is the example, whether you're a man or a woman, is Christ himself. It's kind of one of those you know, no-brainer statements as a Christian. Who's our example in all of life? Well, Christ. He's our substitution. He gave his life in death for us so we can have a relationship with him. 
And he becomes our example and driving power for how to live in right response to him. So as Paul calls us to the order he's establishing in our relationship between men and women, he's calling us again to follow Christ as an example, clearly. So you want to know what it is to live as a man in the role that God's given you, look to Christ. If you want to know what it is to be a woman created in God's image, we'll come to in a moment, and to live out that role, follow Christ's example, as he lived under God himself, God the Father. There's parallels going on that give us a clear picture of the principle that Paul's put here in verse 3, that's grounded in God, mirrored in creation, and supported and seen in the gospel, as Jesus lives it out, giving his life under the Father for us. But of course, we can't avoid the word head. There's a few different ways that you could understand and think of the word head, a few different ways to define it. I lean towards the idea of it having the sense of leading, responsibility and authority. You think of a head of an organisation, someone necessarily has to take the responsibility, take the lead, initiate things happening. And so it was Christ over man, man over woman. He's the head. He takes the lead. Let's load into that the, cons- the, the definition or the content that the Bible gives us and Jesus gives us a picture of in his life and death. And it's the picture of leading by service, by laying down your privileges, your rights, your opportunities, your freedom, and using that for the care the initiated care, uh, socially, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, of others and women in your life. That's the idea of headship. Someone who leads, takes responsibility, initiates in service of others laying down their life. Now, Paul quickly turns from the principle to the practice in the context of the day then the time and place, verse 4. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonours his head. You think, how did he make that jump? But we'll come back to that. Verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. That seems like a quantum leap as well. We'll come back to that. But do you notice one of the things that's going on here that's, that's underlying? You know, that really leaves Paul kind of, let's forget about Jermaine Greer, he's out there celebrating the place of women in the life of the church. He's assuming that. Men pray, women pray, pray and prophesy. A high view of women participating in the life of church. Not something that they would have been typically experiencing in the society of the time. But here he comes to church, Paul assumes that happening. And what he's addressing is how that's happening. Now, let's think about this head covering or whatever's going on. Quite clearly, Paul is making a connection between the principle and how that can be expressed in terms of what is attached to on your head or flowing from your head. It's not actually clear at this part of the passage. And so for the man, it's something that they use to cover. Now, in that time and place, men wore togas and part of the practice 
of showing your piety or your worship of other gods, particularly pagan gods, was to get your toga and put it over your head, sort of a pious recognition of the god you're worshipping. So you could imagine that as they spill into the church gathering, men started to do that. It'd be confusing. And Paul says it's actually dishonouring. It'd be a bit like me uh, kind of waltzing into church uh, tonight with those orange robes that Buddhist monks wear. It'd be confusing, wouldn't it? It'd be dishonouring of Christ. Am I worshipping Buddha? Am I, am I following Jesus? So that seems to be the sense of what's going on with the men. Whatever they're doing, whatever the symbol is, the article is, Paul says it's not them showing their God-given roles of men that, man that they're meant to do in honouring Christ, their head. And then he turns to the woman. He's addressing man and woman equally here. And so with woman, it's the opposite. It's the, it's the of uncovering that is the dishonouring symbol with the article. And so again, in, in their day and age, uh, the symbol of marriage, as a wedding ring is these days, was to have your head covered with some kind of veil. So you can get the sense that there was married women coming into the church, praying or prophesying, having sort of, you might say, ripped off their veil and ex- in, in a way that was dishonouring to their husband who, the, who was meant to be the head of them, who was meant to lead them. Somehow for Paul, he's saying that's a sign, a symbol, an indication of you not living out your God-given role as a woman. In fact, he says you may as well go all the way to having your head shaved. Now, women had their head shaved when they were caught in adultery. So it could be that Paul's sort of got a dual thing going on, not only is it disrespectful to the, to the leader in your life, the man, but also there could be some kind of flirtatious practice going on, indicating they're making themselves available. You know, a bit like a man or woman ripping their wedding ring off before they go and hit the town one Saturday night, kind of communicating I'm available in an ambiguous kind of way. Not helpful, dishonouring, Paul says. Now, verse 7, he continues, he says, A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he's God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. Now, I think what's going on here is Paul, in his mind, has Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in his mind. So let's go back to Genesis 1, firstly, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. Page 1 of your Bible, if you want to look it up. It says there, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. You can see there on the screen, I think I've left the word. So God created man in his own image, one statement. Next statement, he created him in the image of God. Seems to be a parallel statement saying the same thing. Next statement, I think is parallel as well. He created them male and female. Now, why I want to point that out is because I think you know, it's the man in the image. It's man in his own image. The next statement you get, having God stated that very clearly, is he created them male and female. It's though the definition, first and foremost, of what it means to be created, humanity to be created in the image of God is to be created male and female. What does it mean, and let me make up a word, to image God, 
but to live out what it means to be a man, your maleness, and live out what it means to be a woman, your femaleness. Being created in the image of God means we have innate, essential worth and value from God in and of itself. How we then live that out quite clearly is because essential to who we are, our being, is our maleness and femaleness. To bring glory to God then is, of course, to live out those two sexes, whether you're male or female. In very essence, that's what it means to bring glory to God. What does it mean to bring glory to something? It actually means to show their worth, to reflect what they're really like, to reflect their character in the way you live, to essentially reflect the character of God as humans is to not blur what it means to be a man and a woman to be clear in that there's an order in relationship going on. Where we come to Genesis 2, the parallel account of Genesis 1, where we have God placing man in the garden, giving him a mandate and a job to work the garden, but there's something missing. Something needs to come that's compatible and complements the man so he can do his mandated role. And nothing can be found. That's what we hear in the account. Nothing can be found until this delightful, beautiful creation comes from him, woman. And you see, he bursts forth in song. It's like, wow, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Finally, someone is being created by God out of my side so they can be alongside me, so we can image God together in creation as we work to complement each other. It's a delightful and joyous thing to be made male or female as we come together, complement each other, to work, to live, to image God by bringing him glory. There's no greater word to us today, is there, than that? Andy Pierce, as he preached this morning, said that on Facebook, there's 58 different categories you can categorize yourself as a person. Now, if that's not confusion, I don't know what is. But essential to who we are, because God made us this way, is either male or female. Now, some of you might be here struggling with that. That may well be reality for you. And it's a God-given struggle. And if you're trying to work that out and you're finding it hard on your own, don't do it on your own. Find someone who can help with you. Because we're inundated by a message that says it's fine. You just socially construct who you are, whatever you want to be. It's established by God, mirrored in creation and shown in the gospel. You know, in, in the fabric of life and society, 
uh, we depend upon, rely upon order, and if not headship or authority, for us to flourish as human beings, to get on with life. I mean, think about your workplace. The only reason it really works, and yes, we struggle against this, is because there's an established order of who's the boss, who's going to take the final responsibility, who's going to give directions, who's going to set limits and restraints and guidelines for how you do your work. Although, yes, we do wrestle with that, the only reason we flourish and it's good for our well-being and that we earn a living so we can support ourselves and others in our life, it's because of the order of relationships. And that's what Paul's reminding us of here in the nature and the context of church. For the, the well-being and flourishing of our church life together, there must be order, someone who takes the lead, someone who honours and respects, and there's joy and delight in that, and that's how we can love each other. Love is living out our God-given differences. Now, I think it would be tricky as I start, if I tried to kind of start wading into uh, what might be the symbols or articles for us in our day and age, like Paul has clearly here, and obviously they were clear. I suspect there are some clear ones for us, as I jump in, I might have a better crack at you know, what they are for men. But I'm certainly not going to wade into what they are for, for women. But I think it's going to be helpful if we talk to each other about this, isn't it? If we're uncertain or unclear what it is to live out, what it means to be a, a man without being cliched and stereotyped, where there's freedom but clarity, what it is to live out what it means to be a woman in the freedom we have so there's clarity. I think we need to help each other in that. We need to talk to each other about what that looks like, how we can serve each other in that way. Then Paul turns to another issue in terms of how we can love, and that is love is living out our unity in Christ, not our differences, which is kind of ironic. So let's go to chapter 11, verse 17. Now, giving the following instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Wow. That's a terrible indictment, isn't it? It would be terrible if that was said about us as a church. You'd be better off not meeting together because you'd be much better off because it's, you're worse having met together. And it's because there's divisions. What kind of divisions? Let's go to verse 20. Therefore, when you come together... It is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. There's divisions and factions happening in the life of church and what it looks like is the rich trampling the poor. The haves gorging themselves on what they have without any consideration for those who have not. So they're having a meal together, the rich turning up with their lobster, caviar, fine wine, before the others can even get there, and they probably didn't even have to work to get that. 
They're finishing it off, scraping up the leftovers, taking them home as well, probably. And so they're just trampling on the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul quickly launches into the very solution and reminder of why that shouldn't be the case. That's highlighting a difference and a division that shouldn't be present because we're all equal in Christ. And so he launches into verses 23 to 25, a reminder or 26, a reminder of the Lord's Supper and the supper Jesus had the night before he died, where he spoke about the Passover Supper, where he spoke about the fact that he was going to be the Passover lamb, that in his death, he would satisfy God's judgment that we deserved. So if we put our trust in his death, God's judgment would pass over us, a remarkable miracle. And Paul says, remember that when you eat the bread and you drink the wine. Remember that, because that is what makes you one with God the Father and so one body with each other. You're one body. How can it be that you're one body and then you're acting in divisive ways as if you're not. It's inconsistent, he's saying, with who you are. You're one body. So act and love as one body quite clearly. But he really ramps it up, doesn't he? Verse 27 to 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is, I think, eating in a way that's taking the benefits of Christ so you're one with God, yet not being at one with other people, whether that be an individual or group, whether that be you avoid them, ignore them, or outright despise and dismiss them. That's unworthy to do that. You can't claim reconciliation for yourself with God and not be reconciled with someone else. So verse 28, So a man should examine himself. In this way he should eat the bread and drink the cup. Examine yourself. Is there a relationship in your life that's not reconciled? That's what it means to examine yourself. Not a witch hunt, a ferret hunt, a quest into every sort of nook and cranny of sin in your life. You won't discover it. What's on view is relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 29. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, recognizing the body of Christ and what he's done for you, so you're one with the Father, Father so that you're one body, Eats, drinks, and drinks judgment on himself. What does that look like? Verse 30, this is what he says. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Well, when I read that this week, and as I meditated on it, it was like a penetrating arrow into my heart as someone who has an ongoing chronic sickness. I thought, wow, Lord. Have I been inflicted with this because of sin in my life? Now let's step back a moment and think about what Jesus says about the connection between sin and sickness. You might remember in John 9, the disciples come and ask him about a man born blind and they ask, who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. Begun, repent. He breaks the connection between sin and sickness. 
And you see the same thing play out in Luke 13. Luke 13, you might want to look it up later on. So he breaks that connection, direct connection between being sick and your sin. But here, Paul is making the connection that your sinning in not being reconciled, making, causing divisions, so some of you are sick, ill, and died. That's a strong connection. So, you know, what do we do with that? How do I respond to that? Well, I think it's pretty clear from what Paul's saying. It's worth asking the question. Examine yourself. Is there sin in your life's unrepentant sin so that you're not reconciled to a Christian brother and sister? Sin and sickness could be connected, but not necessarily. Did you hear what I said? Could be connected, but not necessarily. This is not judgment from God in the sense that we're condemned forever. That's not possible for someone who's put their trust in Jesus. See the word discipline? Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you sense God's discipline in a sickness, you see a sin, you repent. That's what God wants to achieve. Because that's what will happen in you. You'll turn back to Jesus and you'll take the action you need to follow through in your repentance. Please come and talk to me later if you want to talk more about that or anything else in the sermon, actually. When we do communion in the morning at 8 o'clock, people come and they kneel at the rail at the front. It is a great symbol of what's happening. Because you kneel and you bow when you're in great need. You're desperate. I need something. You get down on your knees and you ask, don't you? I'm really in great need. And it's it's an acknowledgement of our need because of our sin. And one of the things I find intriguing as I look at it, people kneeling, is this, the soles of their shoes. It's, an, it's, it's, it's equaling and levelling to kneel, but then soles of shoes are also levelling. I mean, you can have fancy leather-soled shoes, but mostly they're not that fancy and rubber. But it doesn't matter what they're made of, because what do soles of shoes represent? Just the dirt and grime and whatever we bring into the church building. And so I can't help but think it's kind of like a picture of what we bring in, what we bring to communion. This is kind of the dirt and the grime and of our own hearts because of sin. And we bring that to the cross of Jesus and his death. And you know what is remarkable? What's remarkable? We kneel, we do absolutely nothing. By faith, we... We eat and drink. We remember the death of Jesus on the cross. The one who created us, who we sinned against, giving his life for us. We're reminded of that and are freshly reminded and forgiven. And we stand up assured and confident. All the dust, grime and dirt, gone. Remarkable miracle. We give a newness of life. 
And the only way forward in terms of loving relationship, which we all crave, we're made for. That is the purpose of life, to know what it is to live in loving relationship. God the Father and each other. God's made it possible. And it's only possible as we remember our Creator, how He's made us. And who he's made us in Jesus. One with God the Father and so one with us. It's only as we come back to that that we're given given the power, the energy, the motivation, the resources to live in a way that is for our own good and well-being and flourishing and of course each other's in Christ. If you're here tonight and you're someone who doesn't know the forgiveness of Jesus in his death, tonight's the night to receive that for yourself. A way you could do that is by sharing and communion that we're going to do in a moment. Eating and drinking as an expression of your faith that Jesus' death is effective for you to be one with God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can come to you, be forgiven because of the death of Jesus, confident that your judgment will pass over us because his death was sufficient. Help us, Father, for that to be effective in our lives, reflecting on how you've made us as men and women so we know clearly what that means, so we image you and bring glory to you. And so we know what it means to be in Christ in one body and show that in our loving relationships. And we pray this in his name. Amen.